Hello. So today I'm here with Judith Schwartz, who is the author of Water in Plain Sight and the Reindeer Chronicles. So you want to introduce yourself a little bit and how you got into this whole water field? Sure. Okay. So I'm a freelance journalist based in Vermont. And I got into this, gosh, there's so many like, you know, starting and stopping points. Basically, um, back in 2013, I had written a book, I wrote a book about soil called Cows Save the Planet and Other Improbable Ways of Restoring Soil to Heal the Earth. And so clearly came to understand that soil is water infrastructure, that if you have healthy soil, you can keep water in the landscape. Um, just all, that all the many points at which water and soil connect. And yet I was seeing a lot of reporting about the then California drought in, the, in 2014, 2015. And it was only discussed as in terms of how, what does or doesn't come down from the sky. And I was here saying, wait a second, wait a second. It has a lot to do with the land too. So, so that, that has been my focus. And um, I've been also, so you mentioned the Reindeer Chronicles and that's a kind of global tour of earth repair. And when it comes to restoring ecosystems, working at the level of the water cycle is always, always primary. And again, it comes down to something very simple, which is the importance of holding water in mm. the landscape. Cool. And how do you choose like who uh, you interview for water? Or is it because you're trying to do an article on something and then you find someone and then you uh, go interview them for your books or how does that work usually? Yeah, so um, it's kind of hard to explain how, I mean, every, every journalist and author has their own their own process, but a lot of it has to do with who and what I bump into, what articles or books are compelling at the time. There's a lot of serendipity. Uh, when I think about, actually in the water book that you, that you mentioned, when I think about some of my favorite chapters, they were completely improbable. So I wrote a chapter, it's called Dew in the Desert, that focus, it's all about condensation. And it focuses on a couple who at that time were living in far west Texas and got all of their water from dew, from condensation. And I just, you know, was compelled by the importance of condensation in so many levels. And as um, one farmer said to me that, that, that dew is the most Dew is the, the most reliable moisture in an environment and therefore the most important. But anyway, I just, that, I had an interesting conversation with someone named Catherine Otmers. I was intrigued by the way that she talked about water. And on the basis of that, went to far west Texas for a week. So, you know, so a lot is serendipity, a lot is reporter's luck, and a lot is trust in oneself if you are genuinely following an intellectual inquiry 
that the path that you are on is something that you can share with readers. Mm. And so is a book like War in Plain Sight something you pitch to the publishers and then go out and write it? Or do you write all these little vignettes and then kind of say, hey, this could form a book and then approach a publisher? It's in between. Mm. So what I've found is that by the time I'm pitching a book to a publisher, I've already been working on it without even acknowledging that to myself. Mm. I've already been collecting stories. So it's a, it's a little bit combined. Okay, cool. So now you're focused on the wildlife. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and today, I guess we're gonna talk about uh, animals and water, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So wildlife and animals in general have been a theme in, in my work all the way through, um, you know, all the different, most of the chapters that I've written do have something to do with, with animals because they create our ecosystems and we ignore the role of animals at our peril. Um, yeah, so um, it began with, with the book about soil and the title of which is Cows Save the Planet. And so looking at what kind of turning our assumptions upside down because what I find is that there are so many misconceptions about the impact of animals on, our, on the environment. And once we understand more deeply how animals create our ecosystems, and they do that by essentially creating, helping to create the conditions under which they thrive, which as it turns out, our conditions under which we thrive, we as humans thrive, then we can make better decisions to ideally um, enhance our wildlife populations because they are they are declining, and that's really of huge, huge concern. And in my work, I've focused on or I've just, it just, this just occurred to me now, many instances in which government policy is to cull animals, to kill animals, when in fact those animals were helping to enhance conditions in the environment. So animals are really affecting our ecosystem and then because the ecosystem, there's a feedback loop between the ecosystem and the land and the climate. It's also as a consequence in influencing the climate, and um, and then it influences in the climate in through both through the carbon cycle and also through the water cycle. And uh, and I yeah. yeah through the carbon cycle, water cycle, nutrient cycle too, because animals are are nutri nutrient pumps. So maybe they're taking nutrients from where there may be excess, moving, moving those nutrients to another place. Um, and the same thing with moisture. So in dry land environments, during the dry season, moisture is basically held and moved through the, 
the stomachs of ruminant animals. So it's, it's very, very complex and, you know, kind of complex choreography of all these, all these functions. Yeah, so I guess uh, let's like, let's break down and maybe examine each of these uh, areas. So the animals are affecting vegetation, they're affecting the landscape, and then the landscape's affecting the climate. And it's doing it through the, the carbon, the water, and the nutrient cycle. So uh, maybe let's start with one of these uh, parts. Okay, okay. For the other parts. All right, so I will go back to my reporting journey for water in plain sight. So I was working on a chapter. I had visited ranches, holistically managed ranches in Chihuahua, Mexico. And um, th these ranches were working, they were focused on biodiversity. They were working with bird conservation organizations to create habitat for at-risk migratory grassland birds. So, you know, so I was writing this with my biodiversity lens on. Um, and what I expected to write was that when you enhance the water cycle, a healthier water cycle helps biodiversity, which is true. But what I also found is that biodiversity helps support the water cycle. And this works in so many ways. Yeah, I mentioned the transport of moisture. Um, when, when animals are reinvigorating plants and those plants grow, moisture is embodied in those plants. That's keeping water on the landscapes. And then also a lot of different life forms are creating paths for water to meander and slow down so it doesn't rush off the landscape, but rather goes into the ground. So where I was in Northern Mexico, people were talking about prairie dogs. So they dig tunnels and water flows through that tunnel. So those tunnels, you know, oxygen and water flow there. So that there are many, many, different dynamics. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing just how hard it is to kind of articulate a kind of one line pathway because there are so many dimensions. So the birds as well, they are transporting seeds. They are managing what could be pests. So everything is working together to create the the landscape right because the birds are actually transporting the seeds to other areas and those seeds grow into plants which then slow down the water and then help evapotranspire that water into the air so right. it's kind of a second order effect but it's really key in in spreading out the ecosystem so maybe you have degraded land around one area and then or one area where there's more plants but the birds can actually help bring those seeds to the less you know less grown areas and help that's right. Them, and which then affects the whole water cycle. It, that's right. And enhance biodiversity, uh, the diversity of plants. Mm. So and the more and, diversity, the more likely it is for some of those plants to thrive. And can you say a little bit more about prairie dogs? So when they dig holes in the ground, the water, the rainfall seeps into them. What effect does that have? Or what second order effects and, and, and down the line? What kind of effect does that have on the ecosystem? Um, 
Wow. Um, I, I, um, I don't know. It's mostly, you know, I don't know really where, where to take that particular one further, but um, I guess the water seeps in and, and is held in the landscape. And then um, if it's healthy, carbon rich soil, which the more animals you have, the more car carbon will be in the soil because the more those animals are breaking down plant matter and reincorporating it into the soil, then that allows the water to seep in and replenish aquifers. So it's a, a whole system. I mean, in my mind right now, I'm seeing a kind of cutaway view of prairie dog holes and, um, you know, seeing where the paths would go and where the aquifer might be below that. But it's also a whole system because the prairie dogs then would help support the predators. And those predators would be managing other plant-eating animals. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a web. It's a, right. it's a whole web. <laughs> Yeah, it's very interesting to follow the causal chain. Yeah, so when you refill the aquifers, that also allows into the dry season the vegetation to access more water, and it allows the rivers to keep flowing into the dry season, which then affects less, less you know, drought-induced effects during the dry season and um, maybe less fire. Exactly. The more the landscape is hydrated, the less chance for out-of-control fires. Right. And then maybe more evapotranspiration in the dry season, which might lead to more rains in the dry season. So I guess there's all sorts of interesting effects. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's, it's interesting though, like, I don't know if there's research on like, if you have prairie dogs or if you don't have prairie dogs in an area, how, how does it affect all these different things, you know? Right, right. And you mentioned fire. That is a huge, huge matter in terms of the, the importance of animals. So I can tell a couple of stories. Well, one of them is that animals create fire breaks. So I've been um, chatting with my husband who right now is in Barcelona. He's actually in a park. Um, it's an arts residency in a park above the city. And what everyone's talking about is all the wild boar that have come into that park. There's not much biodiversity, and this is actually kind of an important point, that um, in Spain, um, as in much of Europe, there was a lot of deforestation. In Spain in particular, during the Spanish Civil War, you know, trees just, you know, were taken down for fire, firewood, and, um, you know, it was very much defoliated or de-vegetated. De um, and, and now they have a lot of monoculture pines that have come up. So there's not much of a, there's not much biodiversity there now. However, these wild boar showed up and my husband, Tony observed how they, they create pathways. And we were chatting about how those could be fire breaks and that could have a useful ecological impact but the other the other fire importance of animals is that they are consuming vegetation and cycling it into protein and you know into their bodies and the whole food web 
Whereas that vegetation, if it were not consumed by animals, might still by browsers and grazers might, you know, stay into the senescent season, you know, when they're no longer growing, dry out and become fire fuel. So that's really, really significant. And I often talk about this set of this herd of wild donkeys in Australia, in Western Australia, in the Kimberley, where Chris Hengler and his family are managing an area of land the size of Singapore. And they've been using, okay, there's always fires in the Kimberley. I mean, it's like this inflammable landscape. You know, it's very, very rugged. And they were using cattle to manage the fire fuel to reduce the incident of fires. And then these donkeys showed up. Donkeys had been brought to the region as pack animals. And then when mechanized transport came in, you know, the donkeys were let loose and they created bands of animals and social groups and they, you know, they wandered the, the landscape. And Chris and his father realized that they could be part of the fire crew and they were able to herd them, move them by helicopter. So they were doing wonderful work with this because the donkeys would go into areas where the cattle wouldn't go. Donkeys are mostly browsers, whereas the cattle are mostly grazers. But the government says that donkeys, which are not native to the country, are pests, and so they need to be culled. Oh my gosh, I think it's something like 500,000 wild donkeys have been killed in Australia in the last wow. couple of decades. It's actually pretty huge. So it's 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 a tragedy in terms of these you know wonderful smart animals sentient beings and it's a tragedy because of the good that they could do in the landscape mm. particularly if they're managed and you know but even even unmanaged i know scientists that say that they are filling a niche that in Australia that has been vacant since the end of the late Pleistocene. It seems like we really have to kind of take a systems view to understand a lot of this stuff, the impact of animals, because it's so, it's like there's so many different relationships and you have to see it and with the plants and with the geomorphology and with the other animals, like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's like it's kind of tricky actually to sometimes see the exact effect it has almost and I think in complexity and in design thinking there's almost like you do a little change and see how it ripples out and then maybe you can make another change because it is hard sometimes to figure out maybe just from what you're given what exactly impact an animal is going to have yes definitely um I'm encouraged that I'm seeing more and more articles being written about beavers and how they create wetlands and more about how goats and sheep and cattle can help manage fires, fire fuel. And yeah, there seems to be more interest. So I'm really hopeful that people will start to open their minds 
to this possibility, which as you say, is very different from linear thinking. And linear thinking is when people assert that one hamburger represents, you know, X hundred gallons of water. You know, that's completely, you know, talking about industrial agriculture and really out of context because there are places where the use of livestock have has enhanced the water in the landscape. So it just doesn't make any. Can you talk about those cases where the livestock has enhanced the water? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, so in Chihuahua, in, in, in Mexico, the, so um, Alejandro Carrillo, my host down, down there, he, took over the ranch that had been in his family for a long time. And that area, they get very little rainfall. I think about nine inches of rainfall a year on average. So every drop of water that can be held in the landscape matters. So I don't think that the land was horrible when, when he took it over, but by, by applying holistic plan grazing, the the grasses started growing in just a few years the grasses were waist high now what that means is that those grasses are pumping carbon into the ground and every one percent increase in soil organic carbon so that's from going from one percent carbon to two percent carbon etc represents about 20 to 25 thousand gallons of water per acre that can be held on the land. So that's one factor. Also, those grasses have deep roots. So they're going way, way down. And so th there's that aerates the soil so that more water can infiltrate and, and, and move down into the soil profile. Um, yeah, all, all these different ways that it draws more insect life, dung beetles, which carve paths like miniature prairie dogs into the soil. Again, pathways where water and air can flow. So it creates the conditions for water to stay in the ground. And then the more vegetation you have, that is more water, more moisture that's embodied in, in the plants themselves. And the healthier the plants, the more water cycle, the daily water cycle functions like the dew. So the healthier the plants, the more dependable the dew. So it works on all sorts of levels. And I just laugh to think that um, everybody, people in the region look at his land and they just say, ah, you get more rain, you know, even though they're neighbors. And yet that may be true because when you have healthy biodiversity, those, those plants are also sending up bacteria that can seed, that become the precipitation nuclei that seed the, seeds the rain. So it does all work together. Healthier, healthy vegetation creates the conditions for good rains. Yeah. And then also, yeah, I guess uh, the, the 
because the plants and healthier soil can absorb more rainfall and then the plants can help evapotranspire more and to get more water vapor that then also the bacteria can then seed. Um, so yeah, so there is again, like many, many order effects here. The cows, if it's done right, can help increase the, the soil quality, help, you know, the grasses grow, help the water seep in. And then, and then there's a second order effect that then that water that can then go into the sky to actually affect droughts or rains or, um, and also, uh, also because the vapor transpiration of the water, it actually takes up heat from the earth and then puts it up into the atmosphere. So it's also cooling. So um, oh, it also has an effect on global warming, you know, lessening. Absolutely. It. The difference between Alejandro's land, which had lush grasses, and then land nearby, which was poorly, it had poor grazing management and it was dirt with just a bit of mesquite growing. I mean, if you, if you walk on those landscapes, it's like you're on different planets because when you have bare soil, it, the, the sun beams down and it just heats, heats that ground. And that has huge implications because the surface of the soil heats up faster than the air. So, I mean, on a hot day when maybe it's 80, 90 degrees outside the soil, can be 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And when you get beyond a certain point, the microorganisms die. So I think I have it, I'm almost reaching for my book because I forget exactly where it starts, but might be like over 100 degrees that you start to lose microbial life from the, the heating up of the soil. Mm. Of course, moisture, keeping moisture in the ground, which supports the plant, plants. And if you have moisture in the ground, you will have plants that cools and creates more biodiversity. Right. I, I think we have to also um, distinguish here between uh, holistic grazing and also or rotational grazing and other methods of grazing, right? Because uh, if you don't do it right, like they've actually cattle have destroyed rivers because they take away all the riparian vegetation or they actually take away the rain in some areas because they, they chew away so much of the vegetarian that there's erosion and then the vegetation disappears. And so it's really key to distinguish the two types of way we're dealing with cattle. Definitely. Oh, absolutely. So the, um, the Australian farmer that I, that I mentioned, Chris Hangler, I love the way he talks about cattle. He calls them power tools. And like any power tool, it can be incredibly helpful when applied properly and incredibly destructive when used improperly. Mm. I wanna take up another example of an animal. I, there's a kind of a well-known, uh, I think YouTube kind of went viral a bit about how the wolves, when they introduced into the Yellowstone, um, had this whole impact on how rivers flow because the wolves, because when they didn't have enough wolves, the deers would overpopulate and they'd eat down the trees. And then the beavers didn't have enough trees, so they wouldn't be there. And so then they wouldn't be damming the rivers. And, uh, and so the rivers wouldn't be overflowing to create wetlands. And then there wouldn't be enough trees to stop erosion. And so the whole river system would change actually after the wolves were introduced. So it's almost like a third order effect. 
Yeah, well, this has been happening all across our country because beavers had been removed from the landscape and also predators. So people don't like predators, ranch, or I can't say all ranchers, but many, when you're, when you have livestock, particularly smaller livestock like sheep and, and, and goats, and then of course calves, the um, predators are a threat to your herd. So that's where we get into big trouble. But then there are a lot of holistic ranchers, people who, who practice holistic management that have learned to live with the predators and actually have come to feel that their herds are healthier when there are predators because they, they help manage the health of the herd. Um, but sometimes all that takes is a really small adjustment. So a lot of times people, they have their cattle calf in the spring and that has to do with, well, many things. One is that that's how it's always been done. So people just do what has always what they're used to doing, but also I think because of when they would be ready to sell and they'd get a better price. But the ranchers I worked with in Chihuahua, they said, well, that makes no sense because then you have the calves are born when there's very little vegetation. It's early in the season, very little ve vegetation to um, hide them. And so you're more likely to lose those animals. Whereas if you have, if you have, if you have the animals give birth in August, and that's what they're doing now, then the, the, the it's easier to protect those animals from the mountain lions that are in the region. So this is all very interesting. Do you have another example of another animal that has an impact on the water cycle? Goodness, goodness, goodness. Um, I mean, we could kind of like, you know, take any animal and, and see where they see how they do that. Um, you know, I'm just thinking um, one example that I had in my in my book, The Reindeer Chronicles, is more about them managing the the cooling keeping the ground cool mm. so that isn't quite the water cycle although i guess it is because it would keep it would keep the snow frozen so the example there is that the um in the winter the huge herds of reindeer are pressing down the snowpack and while that sounds like that's a negative thing actually the snowpack was insulating the soil so that it wasn't it wasn't free in keeping it really really cold, but by pressing the snow down, then it exposes the soil to the very cold air, and that keeps keeps the permafrost frosty. So that's that's an example, and it's also another example of a government that wanted to cull or they have been calling reindeer herds, saying that the reindeer are damaging the fragile tundra ecosystem, when in fact, it's the opposite. They're actually keeping that, they're, they're maintaining ice and cold. Mm, interesting. 
So yeah, so I guess water also takes this other form, you know, of a of a solid as in as in ice. I mean, and snow. And uh, yeah, there's different ways animals interact with that. Um, yeah, with the snow. Are there other animals that interact with ice or snow that are kind of interesting? Goodness, I mean, um, animals that evolved to live in snow, you know, or live in the very cold environments. You know, it's a basic rule. I think I mentioned this before that that life forms create the conditions under which they thrive. So it's in a musk ox's, you know, it's to a musk ox's benefit to maintain the, the icy um, landscape. And I don't know if, if you are aware of Pleistocene Park mm -hmm. in, in Siberia, where Russian uh, father and son Russian scientists have ex looked at the Pleistocene, the mammoth steppes, this where it, that was hugely productive with all of these large animals and how they maintained that cold, very Northern ecosystem. And one of the impacts of that ecosystem being sustained is that a lot of carbon is going into the ground. I mean, you know, we, we know how much waste how much nutrient cycling a big bull does, but these musk oxes are huge. And so there's a lot of nutrient cycling and then in incorporating the grasses into the soil and that builds soil carbon and that draws down atmospheric carbon and that holds more moisture and then in the in the winter that moisture is frozen and their hooves or whatever you call their feet press down the snow so that it stays icy so it's all these different interactions mm, interesting yeah cool so yeah another animal that compresses the snow and keeps the ice and keeps it cold longer and very interesting <laughs> um yeah, almost like they're doing some kind of refrigeration role. Um, yeah, I want to throw out an, another one. I was thinking about um, how the how the animals can impact the water cycle is a uh, because fungi can also seed rain. So the spores um, they fly up into the air, and then the the rain can seed a little at lower temperatures. I mean, at higher temperatures with the fungi spore. So flies are often eating these mushrooms. And so they fly to other areas and then other animals eat these flies like frogs and other things. And, and so then the spores can come out, you know, out of the dead flies and, uh, but now like further away. And so they can seed more mycelia, but also seed fungi that then kind of seed rain elsewhere. So it's kind of almost affecting the geo, geographical distribution of rain in, in an interesting way. That's right. And then those fungi are creating the conditions under which they thrive because mushrooms thrive in moisture. So right. by seeding the rain, they're also enhancing the water in the landscape. And that's exactly what they like, the hydrated 
And then the fungi are really important because they, they, they allow the soil to actually absorb more rainfall. And then they also are passing the water from different plants to each other through the, through the soil. So, yeah, I actually think fungi are probably one of the key, just in the whole evolutionary landscape is like, they probably played really key roles in how our water cycle evolved in many ways. And our climate. Very, yeah, very much. I mean, it, it extends the reach for trees and other plants that are that have associations with with um, different mycelial um, fungi that so that means that they can get water from lo longer and nutrients from longer distances so it creates resilience in the face of of drought yeah, I actually think the mycelia is like this almost the largest aqueduct system in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's so many millions and millions of miles of water transportation devices. And so then you could think that any animal that interacts with the mycelia and the, and the fungi like ants or dogs eating or like whatever, and they're redistributing this. They're basically, if, the, if you think of the mycelia as the, ground, the soil aqueduct system, then basically other animals in, interacting with the mycelium, moving it to other places is kind of, you know, help building this mycelial underground transportation water system. Yeah, it, it's pretty amazing once you kind of go into the, I was gonna say that rabbit hole. Well, I guess the rabbits then are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, because the rabbit hole would be like the peridog hole, right? Like they're creating Right. And the ants too, right? Because I think ants are like the biggest biomass on earth. And so they're creating all these tunnels in the, in the, in the soil that's also allowing water to seep underground. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this, yeah, this is just a glimpse into this, into this area of how animals help create our landscapes and our landscapes are created by and sustain our the water cycle and yeah just another kind of angle on how it works yeah just, just kind of a i'm just wondering like how we can actually because there's this like it's so complex like what's the way to almost like create a more of a larger paradigm framework around it and i'm wondering what I guess one way to do it is just to look at biodiversity, say like we have plant biodiversity and animal biodiversity and then the soil absorbency and so the, for water. And so as we somehow increase plant diversity, it, it leads to animal biodiversity and animal biodiversity leads to plant diversity. And each of the, that feedback loop helps increase the soil carbon and the soil absorbency for water. So then, it, and that allows water to actually enter into the landscape more. So there's this kind of feedback loop between animal biodiversity, plant diversity, and water richness in the landscape, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a way to frame this whole. Yeah, and really understanding that animals and plants, so animals and plants are repositories of moisture and, I mean, you know, we like many animals are 70% plus water of uh, so repositories of of water and carbon and animals I think concentrate that more 
So, you know, like in the food web, there's a pyramid. So animals eat plants so that, so it's a little more diffuse and then it goes up the food chain and is concentrated. So, the carbon's concentrated. Right, right. Yeah, there is a kind of a, there is a almost a, yeah, there are levels because it's the animals eating the plants. So, and then there's animals eating, you know, high up uh, predators are eating the lower animals. Um, so there is that happening too. Um, from an evolutionary viewpoint, I, I could see that like initially there, there wasn't, you know, the land was probably bare, right? No plants, no animals. And then the water, and the more the water was more in the oceans and when it rained, it probably just went in rivers and right back out to the ocean. It wouldn't stay on the land too long. But as plants began to be on the land, I think the plants were able to hold the rainforest so it wouldn't flow back out so quickly, right? And so then the land gets more hydrated. And then as animals came in, they helped spread these plants to other areas in their ways and also all sorts of you know engineering the landscape to absorb more water. And so then gradually it shifted the whole way the landscape could hold more water and also the way the rivers flow and stayed longer and maybe also increase the aquifers because now water can flow down more. And um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, over time, I guess you could see how the plants come in, increase the water, and then animals come in and even spread out the water even more by increasing the plants in, in all sorts of ways. So, right. I just I just remembered another example um, that about like the wild donkeys in Australia. So, they like many equids, they which are related, you know, family of horse that horses are in. They dig wells. So they are supporting their behavior of digging wells is supporting, is creating water, offering water to small marsupials, many of which are losing population. So that's another way that, so they create wells to support other biodiversity. Mm. Okay, yeah, wells are another geo, geo, uh, what do you call it? Oh, I was going to say geoengineering, but that's not the right way. <laughs> they're, geo <laughs> they're engineering right. the geology. Um, right, yeah. right. And in doing that, I think it's it's worth thinking about how that's also embodied knowledge. So animals have developed the knowledge of how to hydrate the landscape. Like the beavers have that knowledge. Mm. I just had a very tangential thought, but uh, when like in Mars now, they're actually seeing certain patterns of lakes and wetlands that are that used to be on Mars, and they're thinking there's a lot more water than initially thought. Um, and I'm wondering, like, if we can actually make predictions about, say, what kind of water formations would form if there was no life forms, but maybe it's only when you have certain other life forms that you actually get certain formations of wetlands on these other planets. And so then we can actually say, hey, there is, <laughs> that's an evidence for life. Because I think that's how James Lovelock came up with Guy in the first place. He was looking at other planets and saying, are there evidence we can kind of make to show that there's life? And he showed that there was certain non-equilibrium feedback loops that suggested that there was life. But maybe we could also look at water patterns because mm. animals are 
themselves engineering the geo geomorphology of those planets to create wow. wetlands. Imagine if there were beavers on Mars. That would just <laughs> be too much. Right. <laughs> or donkeys. Yeah. Or even if there were just microorganisms, that somehow the microorganisms, I don't know what the causal chain would be, but I assume microorganisms somehow affecting the water patterns in some kind of feedback loop. Because the microorganisms affect the soil and so the soil can absorb more water and stuff like that. Cool. So, um, yeah, maybe uh, do you have any more to say about this or maybe any kind of concluding remarks around this whole water um, animals cycle? Yeah, I guess the concluding remarks would be I just would love to have, yeah, just to keep, keep animals and all wildlife in mind as we address our challenges with water, lack of water, too much water. And of course that connects to, to climate, just that there are whatever challenge we have, there are likely life forms out there trying to help us. And we just might not always recognize it. Yeah. And it seems like, yeah, we, it's really important to map these out. Like if these animals are affecting the climate in all these ways through the water cycle, like we need to map out these causal chains because I don't think those are not solutions to climate change that are currently being proposed, but there are probably lots of very interesting things we can do with the animals to help. Cool, well, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Let me just...